Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our look in this letter. Thanks. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 17 to 22 this morning. Uh, And as you have probably noticed as we go along in these chapters, there is this theme of suffering. And how do we as Christians live in a world in which there is suffering? And what is our response to the trials or afflictions that may come our way? Uh, That's a message you're going to hear repeated as we continue throughout the rest of this book. But let me read for us verses 17 to the end of chapter 3. Peter writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Father, what a great text this is that speaks about your son, of who he is and of what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. And through Peter's letter, we are encouraged over and over again to fix our eyes on Jesus, to follow his example, to put our trust in you and in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And I pray that you would help us to do that today. In his name we pray, amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live in a country where Christians are persecuted for their faith? Open Doors USA is an organization that tracks the persecution of Christians, just like Voice of the Martyrs and other ministries do. And by their calculation, they say that 75% of the people in the world live in an area with severe religious restrictions limitations on what they can do or share or how many people can meet together or restrictions on their freedom in worship. Uh, It's been interesting even this past year. We have had uh, believers from other countries who have shared with us that even in our worship service, they have been deeply touched because in their country, they cannot worship as freely as we do or sing as loudly as we do in our praise and worship. We are told by Open Doors USA that 100 million Christians are experiencing persecution in over 60 countries, 60 countries around the world. And they keep a watch list in terms of where is it the worst in our world, and they identify these countries as experiencing extreme persecution, countries like North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, Pakistan, Sudan, Libya, and Nigeria. And then they list it as severe in countries like in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, or Egypt, Laos, Vietnam, Myanmar, Colombia. 
Countries where there are, again, severe restrictions upon Christians, but not only that, these are nations where pastors and missionaries have been arrested, beaten, thrown in jail, where churches have been bombed, uh, churches have been set on fire and burned to the ground, uh, they've been attacked as worshipers were meeting there to worship. And Christians, in many cases, in many of these countries, as in the Middle East, have fled for their lives, fleeing to countries where there is religious freedom. Now, what would you do if you were in a nation like that? And how would you live? I mean, those are the questions that Peter is wrestling with. Those are the things that he is trying to answer and to encourage us in our faith. Now, we've been blessed to live in a country where we have religious freedom, but it may not always be that way. We may not be facing an immediate threat of physical persecution, but we are living in what appears to me to be this kind of shift in our culture toward Christianity, a changing attitude in our world. And we see it in education where American history is being rewritten to either ignore or downplay the role of Christians in the founding of our country. There's a change that has happened in media over the years where Christians are often portrayed as hypocritical, sometimes stupid, as bigots, or as extremists. And everybody's kind of lumped together, you know, in terms of fundamentalist extremists. There's an openness to other religions and other beliefs and lifestyle practices, but don't mention Jesus. Don't mention Jesus. Recently, we received an email from Trinity Western University. Trinity Western University is an evangelical free church university in Canada. It's, just, it's been one of the leading universities there for many years. God has used it in a powerful way. And a number of years ago, um, they had to fight a legal battle all the way to the Supreme Court in Canada uh, to be able to train teachers and have them fully accredited. The British Columbia College of Teachers, their board did not want to accredit uh, these students that were graduating from TWU because of their religious beliefs. Uh, they felt, you know, that coming out with those kind of attitudes and beliefs that they would be somehow biased or bigoted or not fair as teachers, and so they wanted to deny them accreditation. And thankfully, as they fought this way all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, they were given that right. Trinity Western can train teachers as Christians. But now they are facing a similar challenge in their law school. Uh, they are being you know, told that uh, because of their Christian beliefs that they would have this bias and that would make them unfit somehow to be lawyers, judges, attorneys. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you think about that for us, who know Christ, you're going, how can this even be at times? And yet we are, we are seeing it happen. And once again, Trinity finds itself in a legal battle to defend its right to be able to teach and train lawyers. Apparently, there is something about being a Christian that disqualifies you to teach or practice law in the eyes of many in a world that is becoming more and more secular. And so Peter wrote this letter to encourage us to be believers who stand firm, 
who are strong in the world, who live for Christ, who do what is right and honor God, and who are overcomers by our faith. We are to keep our eyes on Christ and follow His example. And time and time again, Peter's going to keep bringing us back to Him. Look to Jesus. Look to what He did. And remember that this is our hope, that Christ's victory is our victory too, that His triumph is our triumph. So what does he tell us in this passage? He calls us to remember these things. Number one, that Christ has triumphed over sin. Verse 18. He tells us that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He died for sins once for all. Now think about that. There never needs to be another offering for sin ever. All of those sacrifices that were part of the Old Testament sacrificial system all pointed toward one great final sacrifice that would be made. Because, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats could never ultimately deal with our sin. It could never ultimately take away our sin. That there needed to be someone like us, a man who was fully righteous, who had satisfied all the demands of the law, who would stand in our place, and pay that penalty that we deserve. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 10 says that we are made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. This one who was without sin took upon himself our sin and died in our place so that we can be forgiven. And when he had finished offering his sacrifice for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And when it says that he sat down, it was because his work was finished. He had paid the debt in full. And because of what Christ did, the power of sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been taken away. Death has lost its sting. The debt of sin has been paid in full. And one day the presence of sin in us and in our world will be gone forever. And that new heaven, new earth that God is creating, there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more cruelty, no more injustice, no more senseless crimes, no more abuse, no more hatred, no more war, all of those things will pass away. And that's our hope, that Christ's victory is our victory too. He tells us, secondly, that Christ has triumphed over death. In the second part of verse 18, he says that he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. What Peter is referring to here is he is affirming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a real historical fact. Peter writes as an eyewitness of these things, what he saw. I mean, Peter was there and he saw Jesus arrested, taken by this mob that would take him away to be beaten and scourged and crucified. He saw Jesus put to death. And he saw Jesus risen from the dead. Peter was there at the empty tomb. He went and he examined the grave clothes. He saw the stone rolled away. He saw the grave clothes laid there like a cocoon, like the body had simply vanished. He was a witness of those things. 
And when he saw the risen Christ alive in his glorified body, he was amazed. He spoke with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He heard him in his final instructions tell the disciples that I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. He heard the command of Jesus to wait in Jerusalem to not begin this mission until you have been clothed with power from on high. And as they gathered in that upper room, Peter was there and he saw these like tongues of fire come upon them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It was that Spirit who changed Peter's life from one who had denied that he even knew Jesus to one who would be willing to die for Jesus, who would lay down his life for him. And what Peter is telling us here is that just as Christ died and rose again, so will all who believe in him. We will also rise again. In John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. You know, that truth is powerful. That truth has been the fuel that has driven missions as people have gone to the world to bring the good news of the gospel to those who have never heard it before. And the world has always kind of questioned, why do these people do these things? When James Calvert went out as a missionary to the Fiji Islands, and he was asking that captain to simply drop him off on the island and he was going to be there to minister among these people. The captain of the ship sought to turn him back. Said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert only replied that we died before we came here. We died to our old nature and we are alive in Christ. John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides, was warned that you will be eaten by cannibals. You cannot go and expect to live in this place. Previous missionaries had died, given their life, but Patton viewed their blood as that seed of the martyrs that would result in a church, and he continued to work there. And he wrote to a man named Mr. Dixon, who had given him that warning, and he said to him, Mr. Dixon... You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I guess he told him, didn't he? You know, but these men who went out, or men and women who went out as missionaries, they weren't seeking to die. I mean, they didn't have this kind of wish that they would go out and die. They had counted the cost. And they were willing to follow Christ because men and women are going to spend an eternity separated from God unless they know Jesus. And they went out, and they serve as an example to us of people who face the challenge of a secular, ungodly world head on. 
And they chose to live for Christ. They prayed. They preached the gospel. They let their light shine. They worked to literally change the world. You know, recently, Christianity Today had a, an article. Uh, it's called The World the Missionaries Made. And uh, above here on the top, it said how missionaries, and this is part of what's going on today in sort of the revision or the looking at them, missionaries have been called racist, imperialist, proselytizers, but they were also among the greatest force for change in our world and for even modern democracy. And what this man did, who he was working on a dissertation, his name is Robert Woodbury, and he was working on a study, and God had kind of uniquely gifted him with a heart not only for theology, but also a very analytical mind and an understanding of statistics and how you can analyze data and come to conclusions based on that. And he began to do this dissertation that looked at the impact of missionaries around the world and why did some countries in the world develop as they did with greater freedom, greater education, greater human rights and education for women. Why did those nations develop when others that were right next to them did not? And he began to do this research on the impact of missionaries. Because there have been these kind of charges that, you know, there are people in our world who think that if we had just gotten rid of Christianity, if we get rid of all religion, the world would be a better place. Not true. Not true. And what he found out in his study was that in those nations where missionaries went, and he goes, he even narrowed it down even more, not just those that were sent out sometimes as national missionaries, but those who he called conversionary missionaries, those who preached the gospel, those who believed that men and women need to know Jesus Christ, those were the ones who went out, began to translate the languages so that people one day could read the Word of God for themselves in their own language. They began to not only bring the good news to people, but they helped to establish hospitals and schools and fair government and justice, and they influenced literally every area of a country that those conversionary missionaries literally, by the power of God, changed the world. They changed the world. This study has kind of dropped like a bombshell because it refutes what sort of the assumptions have been that missionaries were a bad thing or that if somehow we had just not had them, then people would have lived in sort of their native, pristine condition, you know? Not so at all. God's Word changes lives. And it took men and women of courage who were willing to stand for that. And I look at that in our world and I say, how do we face this growing secularization that's taking place in our world? We need men and women of God who will stand firm in every area of our world. We need believers in education, in the media, in government, in law, in medicine, in all of these different areas to again live like that and to say, you know what? If our world is becoming increasingly secular, then what we need is to think like a missionary here at home. And say, how can we penetrate our world with the gospel? What is it that God is calling us to do? And the place we start is by living a life that is devoted to Him, and we preach the good news to those who do not know Jesus. It's how Christ triumphed. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. 
And thirdly, Christ's triumph over his enemies. Over his enemies. When you look at this, you can move on to the next point, that Christ triumphed over his enemies. When you look at these verses, how they must have been an encouragement to those early believers too. He talks here about how Jesus went in the Spirit and preached to the, the spirits in prison who had disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now here's a passage that in many ways is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the New Testament, and yet the overall meaning of what Peter is getting at is very clear. And this particular passage, you know, he's talking about something that in Peter's mind was very clear, but to us we kind of wrestle with and we ask questions about it. Okay, Peter, what are you getting at here? I smile when I read this text because in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter referred to Paul's writings as Scripture, but he said that in some of Paul's writings, there are certain things that are hard to understand. <laughs> and I go, Peter, I think this is one of those passages in your writing that can be hard to understand. There are three questions that are raised when we look at this. One is, who are these spirits in prison? Are they people or are they fallen angels that he is referring to? And secondly, what did he say? What did he preach to them? Was it a message of judgment or a message of salvation? And thirdly, uh, the question is, when did it happen? Did it happen in the days of Noah? Or did it happen in the time between Christ's death and resurrection? And when you go back through those and you look at each of the kind of options there, and there are many different options, I'm just boiling it down to the main ones. When the word spirit is used of people, there's usually a qualifier with it. And that's why most think that who Christ was preaching to in this example were fallen angels. Fallen angels. And what did he preach? He preached a message of judgment. He announced his victory. The word that's used there for preach is the word that means proclaim. It's not the word that could have been used for evangelism or to evangelize. And plus, when we think of angels, there is no salvation for angels. There's no second chance for them. He proclaimed his victory. And when did this happen? Was he preaching through Noah in his generation? Or did Christ appear in his pre-incarnate state to preach in the days of Noah? Or did this happen in the time between his death and resurrection? I think that is the most likely option. That when Jesus would put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, in that time between his death and resurrection, he went and he preached to the spirits who were being held in prison, who had disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah. At the time that Peter wrote this, the book of Enoch was well known. And almost all of the rabbis in Peter's day believed that Genesis 6, 1-3, that rebellion that took place, referred to fallen angels. They rebelled against God and they sought to destroy his creation by leading man into further and further sin. Some were so evil that they were bound in prison, confined in chains in hell, according to 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 and they have been kept there for the day of judgment. That's a pretty awesome thing to think. 
that there were some angels, so or fallen angels we are talking about here, so evil, so bent on destruction that they have been kept in chains until the day of judgment. And what Christ declared to the fallen angels was not the gospel, but the announcement of his victory and their doom. Christ triumphed over his enemies. And what Peter is saying here is, so shall you. The theme of this passage is one of vindication, that Christ was vindicated. He was proven to be the Son of God. That the world in which we live is a just world. And even when we don't see it in this world, one day all things will be taken care of. And Christ will be honored and glorified as Lord. Justice will be done. Those sentences will be carried out. And here he is writing to believers who are wrestling with that, just like we do, where sometimes it seems like the wicked get away with evil or justice is not done or cruel leaders stay in power much longer than we would think they should. The day is coming when Christ will settle all accounts. Colossians 2.15 said of this event that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. He disarmed them. The picture is of a defeated soldier stripped of his armor, stripped of his weapons, standing there before his captor. And Jesus triumphed over them in the most unusual way, by the cross, by the cross, by his death, his laying down his life And rising up again, he demonstrated who he is in his power. And now he is seated at the right hand where he lives to intercede for the saints, for you and me, where he pleads our defense. He's the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. When he sat down at the Father's right hand, he was given this place of power and authority over our world. When we know Christ as our Savior and Lord, we share in that victory too. You know, and just a a very simple kind of analogy of that. A few weeks ago, some of you were probably watching the Super Bowl. And in it, uh, Seattle was playing Denver. And Seattle, as you know, won that game. And, you know, when they showed the joy of their fans in Seattle, I mean, everybody there was going nuts. You know, when your team wins, what do you do? You shout, we won, we won, you know, and there's this joy and this exhilaration that we won. Well, when the Seattle team got back and they had their victory celebration, you know, they didn't say to those fans, what do you mean we I mean, you didn't do it. We did it. It was, it was us, the guys who were on the field. You know, we did this thing. Who are you guys, and why are you cheering? You know, they didn't say that at all. I mean, they credited their fans as being the 12th man. They said thank you to their fans, and that celebration was for everyone. That their victory was our victory, too. And that is our hope, that Christ's victory is our victory. But one more point he makes here. He makes a shift to talk about baptism in this context. 
And it can seem kind of like an abrupt change in what's going on here. You know, he says in verses 20 to 22, he picks up on talking about Noah and the days in which the ark was built and how in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And then he says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Baptism is the seal of our victory. He tells us that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, but it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Baptism is the sign that we belong to Christ. That we have chosen to be identified with him. When we are baptized, we are confessing before our family, before our friends, before the church, that I have placed my confidence in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I have asked him to forgive my sins, to wash them all away by his blood. And I have chosen to be a follower of Jesus Christ from this day forward. It is a serious commitment that we made. And Peter is saying in the same way that God saved Noah and his family, eight and all through the waters of the flood, God saves us through baptism. But Peter makes it clear that it's not the water that saves. It's not sprinkling or immersing. It's not pouring or those things that save. It is what baptism symbolizes that save. It's the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It is the identification with Jesus in His death and His resurrection that saves us. You see, baptism is like a wedding ring. Both are symbols. A wedding ring symbolizes marriage. Now, it is true somebody could go out and buy a wedding ring and put it on their finger and the ring itself doesn't make you married. No, what makes someone married is the commitment that you make in the sight of God and again before your family to one another that you are to be joined together till death do you part. But the ring symbolizes the vows and the promises that you made to one another. And in the same way, water of baptism or just going through the motions and the action doesn't save anyone. It is the commitment of the heart. It is our choosing to follow Jesus Christ. It is that expression of faith and trust in Him when He has opened our eyes and changed our heart and we've been born again and we respond to the Gospel. It's Jesus who saves us. And baptism is that time when we express that commitment to others. You know, and if you think about that in terms of the analogy, if someone's married and they don't wear a wedding ring, you know, and you look at that, you kind of wonder. I mean, it's become such an accepted symbol that you look at that and you go, if somebody's not wearing a ring, you wonder if they really are married. And in the New Testament, the New Testament knew nothing of an unbaptized believer. That if you had come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you were baptized and it happened so closely together that they could speak of those two things as one event. Have you been baptized? Would you like to be? 
Have you been baptized as one who has chosen to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And if not, I would encourage you to pray about that and to choose to be baptized and following him in obedience to his command. I love it when in the summer we do our outdoor baptism service and we have many people who come and are baptized at that time. Uh, children, youth, adults, all ages represented. And I'd encourage you to think about that and be part of that. You see, Peter understands that life is hard and that there are trials and there are afflictions that we will all face in this life. But God is good and he is in control. And the way that we deal with those trials and afflictions in our life is to be of good courage, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to stand firm, to do what's right, to be that kind of salt and light in our world. Whatever challenges you may be facing at work or at school or in your family situation, to pray and to trust God and say, God, what is it that you want me to do today? And to pray that by His, His power in us that we would be an overcomer, that we would be an agent of change in our world and that God would be pleased to use us to make a difference for Christ in the world in which we live. This is our hope. Christ's victory is our victory too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word, for the strength that it gives to our life, for the direction it gives and the hope it gives. And today as we think about Jesus and all that he went through for us, how can we not live our life fully for you? And Father, I pray for those who are here today. You know exactly what's going on in our life. I pray that you would encourage us and direct us and empower us by your Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord and you would like to, I'd encourage you to just simply open your heart to him and say, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Would you come into my life, be my Savior and Lord, and he will take you at your word. And you could begin a new relationship with him today. And you will know and understand and come into a growing relationship with the one who is the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And may you continue to use it to do its work in our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.